Thank you for tuning into the Radicards podcast on Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and today I have my buddy Ryan Daly joining us today to discuss uh, stuff happening in baseball and on the auction block with cards. And so let's just j- get right into it here. Uh, Ryan, do you want to sort of introduce us with the Josh Donaldson trade? Sure. So Josh Donaldson obviously has had um, sort of an unfortunate year with um, with injuries sidelining him, and he's playing on a team that's not quite in contention this year. Um, so ultimately that resulted in him being traded, and he's still sort of um, on a rehab assignment in the minor leagues. Um, I hope that he can come back and sort of prove himself as a, a major leaguer next year. Um, he's still got some elite-level defensive and offensive skills. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he does. I know that he was a huge guy in the card game for a little while. I know that you have a couple of nice pieces of, of Josh Donaldson. I've got um, one. I have a few pieces. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Yeah. you got like one pretty significant one. Right. Um, so it's it's sort of a weird like late season development, but I think everybody sort of saw it coming just because they have um, a third baseman. So I, as you were saying about Josh Donaldson, you know he's uh, he's 32 this year and he's been playing now for eight years, and you know he was an MVP. He's a, he's a couple time All Star, Silver Slugger, pretty good. Um, he had a stint in popularity in the card market for a while during his MVP run in 2015. Um, but I think he's caught up to a lot of injuries this year. And because he's, you know, um, approaching the end of his prime, I think, uh, in his early 30s, I, I don't know that factually. I just know that um, uh, his numbers might be slowing down just a touch. And um, I, I, I mean, I hope to see that more you know production from Josh Donaldson in the future uh, but I know that he's been sent down actually to uh, play with in the minors while he works out an injury uh, so mm-hmm. we'll kind of we'll kind of see see where that that goes he's with AAA Columbus right now on our 10-day rehab at least that's that was a day ago so <laughs> anyway uh, yeah and so Columbus is is an affiliate for the Cleveland Indians who he was officially traded to um, obviously, he hasn't started a game with the big league club, but um, looking into the future, I mean, we all know that the Indians are sort of a powerhouse of a team these days. And, you know, like you said, it's, he, he might be on the tail end of his career, but um, it'd be a really cool story to see him come back 2019 with the Indians, um, given the talent they have. And if he can really secure like a third base or first base spot on that team and sort of continue with the production that we're used to seeing from Josh Donaldson, I mean, that's going to be a pretty scary team looking uh, into the future. So it's, I mean, of all teams you get traded to, like the Indians, one of the better ones to get traded to. Um, we'll just have to see how his injuries pan out, how serious they are. Um, and if he can keep it up as he sort of progresses into his mid to late thirties. Yeah. I, you know, time will tell. I hope that mm-hmm. he's a uh, productive and continues to have successful years. Um, and who knows, maybe another MVP. I don't know. I mean, it's dual MVPs in a career is, is a kind of a rare thing. Uh, but, 
Um, it does happen. So I, I hope that to see that uh, someone in their thirties is still able to, you know, pull the strings to become, uh, to showcase superstar abilities. So good luck to him. Well, it's going to be kind of interesting to see him in the Cleveland Indians outfit since he's, Yo, been, definitely. he's been kind of <laughs> moved around a bit. You know, he, he came up with Oakland and then he got, he moved to Toronto. It's weird that we have still baseball teams in Canada. I always thought that, like, I know that Expos moved down to the Washington to take the old Senators logo uh, that we had in the 70s and um, use it for the Washington Nationals. And we still have a team up in Toronto. I just I find it fascinating. We have a team in another country that represents the United States. So I've always I've always been intrigued by that little fact. But, you know, Frank Thomas played for Blue Jays for a minute toward the end of his career. Um which I think was a bad place to put Frank Thomas in the, at the end of his career. Uh, it's not the warmest place to to play baseball. So, but yeah, good luck to Josh Donaldson. We hope to see him, uh, you know, perform somewhat well in the future. Hopefully, he's able to have a still a, a, continue a very strong, solid career. So, um, moving on, we got uh, some interesting news that you had brought up. Actually, why don't you introduce us with the uh, Shohei Otani news? Yeah, so this is news that I think a lot of baseball fans probably saw coming. Um, Otani was diagnosed with a new strain or tear to his uh, UCL, which is in a, a pitcher's elbow. So mm-hmm. in Otani's case, it's, it's his right elbow. And that usually what happens is you get Tommy John surgery, and that's been recommended by the Angels team doctors. Uh, I believe... There's a few edge cases of pitchers who have gotten that diagnosis and continued on without TJ, mm. um, Masahiro Tanaka being one of them. So I think that he should just do it. He's he's 23. He's young. It's going to suck for, for baseball and for Angels fans, but I would just get it out of the way if I were him. Um, and we were sort of talking earlier about He's such this amazing talent. He's a, a threat at the plate and on the mound. So if he gets the the surgery, are they going to just let him continue to hit? I mean, what's the game plan there? It's it's a very tricky situation if you're in the Angels' front office. Um, and today, after getting the news, like this sort of detrimental news for a, an athlete's career, he went out and he homered twice in a game, stole a base. I think he had like a base hit or two. He had a monster game at the plate, and to me, that was basically him just saying, "Hey, I'm just I'm gonna play no matter what, um, no matter what injuries I have, and if I can't pitch, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit like at an elite level, which is what he's doing right now. Um, so going forward, it's we, we don't really have that much time left in the season. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they just sort of like bench him and give him the surgery, and he's we won't really hear from him, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the starting lineup as a designated hitter uh, in 2019. So this is interesting news because, um, as you know, on June 6th, he we had the news that he you know, had his initial UCL strain, and uh, we were concerned then that he might need to have Tommy John surgery. And it was that same week that the superfractor was finally pulled, and I think it was like on the same day that the news broke those two pieces of information were published like super factors pulled the day he's, you know, uh, sent away on rehab essentially. 
and so not even rehab it was like he i think there was like three weeks where they had to like figure out how to diagnose him properly and so right i think he was given some stem cell therapy right upon his initial diagnosis so like i said before everybody thought upon that initial diagnosis that it was going to eventually lead to tj right and here we are you know like a month or two later and we're looking at that diagnosis so it's interesting now that the super factor is now listed on uh goodwin and co auctions which is actually owned by beckett media and uh just got listed six thousand dollars starting but it's already at like it's over twenty thousand dollars right now and this news just a couple days later <laughs> gets published i just the, the kind of like the the combination of events that take place in tandem uh is is kind of coincidental uh, and, and unfortunate, I guess, especially for the superfractor, that its, it's potential value, um, I think, is going to be impacted because of these two pieces, this, this, this news, right? So based on mm-hmm. what you're saying, you think you should get Tommy John just to get it out of the way, like so many other pitchers have done? Uh, and because I know that when stuff like this happens, a lot of the hobby just kind of moves on. You know, I know this happened to Strasburg in 2010. Like, p- people just they started going after Bryce Harper like almost immediately and other, they just prospected elsewhere. And so when Strasburg finally came back on the scene in 2012, um, it almost kind of felt like he was sort of an afterthought, which is weird. So Mm -hmm. I I wonder if that's going to be the same outcome uh, for Otani, knowing he's a dual talent Babe Ruth type player, you know? And so to me, I think because he is such a talented kid, I, I personally would, I'm rooting for him to succeed in his career. And if he needs to take Tommy John surgery at such a young age where he's still resilient, I think that might be a good, good decision to just get that out of the way now, not worry about it. And, you know, like, do we use him as a batter? I mean, there's, there's talk, like, do we put him in the outfield just to field balls, just to catch, you know, um, or like, how do you, how do you manage that as you're trying, trying to decide if he needs it? Cause I, it's my understanding that, that, the news will come on Monday as to whether or not he's actually officially going to need that surgery. And, you know, I'm the type that's like, look, if you need it, get it done, get it out of the way and knock it out. Like don't harp on it. It'll just hurt your performance over time. And so, um, if it needs to happen, it needs to happen. I mean, there's no, there's no real around that, you know, he's still very young. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're sort of on the same page. I, I, just sort of get it done. Mm-hmm. If he he's 23 now, I'm not sure when his birthday is, but it seems like by the time it's all said and done, he'll be back pitching when he's like 24, 25. Well, he's 24 now, which is still relatively young. Okay, so yeah, it'd be 25, 26, mm-hmm. which is still like relatively young as as far as pitchers go. Sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, just get it over with. Um. I'm sure there'll be some opportunity for him to hit if after he's recovered fully, um, he can wear an elbow guard at the plate um, to sort of protect that particular elbow. Um, and he, he keeps showing this this year that he can hit major league pitching. Sure. So he's he's a legit sort of multi-talented baseball athlete, which we haven't really seen since Babe Ruth. All right. I think one of the last like big stats that was in the papers that he was like the last guy to hit 15 home runs and pitch 50 innings since Babe Ruth. Well, I mean, I, it's, and it's almost like who, what other 
person could you compare him to? Because of course it's since Babe Ruth. Like there is no other. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like I see those tops now updates. They say like, you know, Otani, and then a a shuffle of statistics since Babe Ruth, and I'm like, well, duh. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's no nobody else else that you can compare him to. Of course, it's since Babe Ruth. I just find that kind of like almost like a redundancy, you know, like an obvious statement, like an obvious fact. And you can, you can sense Babe Ruth facts all day long between Otani and Babe Ruth. So um, it's almost like too obvious to mention. Uh, he's so good and so talented and so special in that way that, that um, it's, it's almost become like, you know, it's like, doesn't surprise me that these records are kind of being broken. I'm actually stoked that they are because it's been so long since we've had a guy on the field like this. And, you know, maybe down the line we'll see another guy like this. It's just exceedingly, exceedingly rare. It's like unicorn status to find people like this that are talented in both positions. Um, but uh, now I know that Jose Canseco pitched in 93 for half a minute with the Rangers, but he's also a batter. But that's kind of like an apples and oranges scenario because uh, it was like a temp um, arrangement. So um, I really wouldn't compare that with, you know, you couldn't say like, well, Otani's broke this record since Jose Canseco pitched in 93, but also since Babe Ruth in, you know, the early 1900s. I don't know if you remember that in 93 or not, but uh, anyway. Um, yeah, well, there's there's been like, there's a little niche history of baseball with position players totally. um, pitching. But it's usually it's it's like extreme situations. Totally, we we literally have nobody else to throw the ball, so let's get you know some random outfielder or whoever, and maybe they pitched in college at some point, so give them the ball. But um, I like you said, it's 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 an exceedingly rare talent to to go out and and be uh, competitive on the mound and at the plate. It's one thing to go out and maybe get your team through a couple innings um, and try your hand at pitching, but for him to go out and start games and to start games uh, at, at the DH, it's, it's very impressive. So totally wish the best for him. It's, it's hard to see. I know that he's probably very frustrated and I'm sure the angels are frustrated as well, but, well, like you said, if it has to happen, it has to happen. Just I mean, get the surgery, and we'll see. You, we'll see you in a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, everybody's gonna be frustrated with this, but it's like completely out of everybody's control. You know, it's it's yeah. one of those things. It's like, dang, that's terrible. But you know, how do we manage the situation? It becomes like a contingency planning at this point. You know, like okay, we've got this guy who's really good. Now he's injured. Okay, how do we manage this to get the most out of him? You know, or quickest, or how do we? What's, what are the best decisions we, we make now to prepare for not having him for so long until he comes back? Because it is a year off. I mean, that's like a really long-term recovery process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do we plan to have him back in, you know, 2020 to, like, ensure that we can keep his talent, keep his keep his uh, abilities, keep the, his – athleticism is kind of a weird word for me. I don't like saying it. But, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So, like, how do you preserve that? So I know that Mike Sosha has got – He's up in his last year with the Angels as a manager, I think. And so, you know, is he going to see him again when Otani's back with the Angels? I mean, this is kind of the question is if Sosha's kind of up for retirement soon or renegotiation or whatever it is, you know, this might be the last interaction that they'll have in the the professional arena. So that's also something else that I'd be concerned about if I were Sosha, the poor guy. So anyway, I'm glad we got to touch on that. Do you have any 
thoughts you want to share additionally before we move on to the next piece? No, I think we covered it. Yeah. Okay. Um, moving on here, late season call-ups. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. So this is a kind of a funky time in the season. Yeah. Most teams are wildly out of contention. Um, if you're a fan of a team that is in the playoff hunt, good for you. But there are a lot of teams that are just sort of floundering away um, in September. Mm-hmm. And one of the sort of silver linings of this situation is that you get to see uh, certain teams' top prospects get called up. So, so far we've seen a couple notable ones. Uh, Luis Urias, Taylor Ward, Michael Kopech, and Francisco Mejia have all gotten called up. And these are all guys that are, have been on like top 10, top 100 sort of prospect lists. Um, and one guy we haven't seen is somebody we talked about earlier in relation to Josh Donaldson. That's Vlad Guerrero Jr. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like such an obvious thing. You trade away your starting third baseman in Josh Donaldson, call up Vlad Guerrero Jr. Mm. He's like widely regarded um, as the number one prospect in all of baseball. So I don't know why Toronto is being so coy with with that particular player, um, but it is fun to see these guys come up uh, that have just been tearing it up in AAA. Um, Taylor Ward, Michael Kopech. Uh, I watched Michael Kopech's first game on the White Sox, and he's just he's one of those like Nolan Ryan type, just super fastball heavy, um, very powerful. Um, and then like Luis Uris and Francisco Mejia, both on the Padres, they were both on like, just like Vlad Guerrero Jr. They're both on these, like all these top 10 lists. And, um, so obviously the Padres are not really going to be a playoff team, but if you're a Padres fan, it's gotta be fun to see these guys come up and it's, it's essentially like the next four or five years of your team. You're looking at in these two guys, you're looking at the future of your franchise. Um, so it's nice to see them come up in relatively low pressure situations and just sort of do what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all young. They've all never been um, exposed to major league pitching and hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's an interesting time. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned four or five guys here, but I'm sure that I'm missing a few other uh, oh, late season call-ups. Of course. Well, um, so, okay. A couple of things like, so is it confirmed then that the Toronto Blue Jays are, they have this plan to, their plan was to move Donaldson to replace him with Vlad Guerrero Jr. Is that, that's, that's the assumption here? Yes. I I think that's the overall assumption. That being said, they haven't promoted him this year yet, which I think is, um, a little baffling to a lot of people. Um, that being said, I'm not intimately aware of all of the, contractual obligations of calling up a player in the minor leagues. Right. I mean, the Toronto front office might have another reason for keeping him in the minor leagues mm-hmm. and just waiting until next year. Um, but history of, of August, late August, early September of all these top prospects coming to fruition in the big leagues. Um, and it's, it's a little mysterious as to why he's still in the minors. Um, especially, I mean, like just thinking from a fan's perspective, um, and from like a business perspective, you're trying to put a nice product on the field for your fans. And even though that the blue Jays are not going to make it anywhere near the playoffs, sure. at least have the star prospects, you know, that'll put butts in seats for sure. Um, so it's a little 
odd, but I'm sure they have their reasons. Well, there's probably um, some like like you said, contractual obligations that are not that need to be met in a specific way legally that that right. you know doesn't that unfortunately does disallows a team to bring up a guy when they think they can make money on ticket sales, like you were saying. Now, both of us don't know the facts, so neither of us can say one way or another why Toronto has or hasn't brought up a prospect. I'm with you though. Like Vlad Guerrero Jr. is a highly touted prospect; he'd be fun to watch. Um, really exciting to see kind of where he's going to end up. But we're we're approaching the end of the season here, and as you were saying, Blue Jays don't really have a chance at this point. Um, it's kind of like a moot point to bring up a prospect for like a couple of games and then like, all right, we'll see you later. <laughs> you know, like it's almost, it's important to like make the most use out of them and also allow them to feel like they're being used in the best way possible. And, and, you know, let's just say, let's just say hypothetically that Toronto was in a position to potentially be in the postseason, and you bring a Vlad Guerrero and then Toronto and he plays like three games and, and Toronto wins the world series. <laughs> It's almost like Vlad Guerrero got a World Series for nothing, you know. So I, I think about like, like you use a player to the best of your ability for as long as you can. Um, and I don't, honestly, like, how often are guys brought up this late in the season? I I, I know if guys bring, you know, they they come up in like April and May and those first couple of months of the season. But how often is it that we're this far in? And well, you know, I I would my my rebuttal to that statement would be that um, Major League Baseball has a rule on. Um, like other professional sports that as you near the end of the season into the playoffs, rosters expand and it's specifically for this reason is so you can dig into your development system in baseball. It's the minor league system. Mm -hmm. You can dig into these triple a players that you've been developing for, you know, three, four years. Right. And you can add them to your major league roster. Um, because a lot of teams are going to be making these playoff pushes and you want as many guys on your roster as possible that it's going to make a playoff berth uh, happen for your team. So that's why we see these late season call-ups is it's not just to sort of jerk around the minor league players. It's, it's because there's a, there are roster spots available that right. were not available earlier in the season. Okay. Um, so you might as well take the, the cream of the crop that you have in the minors and promote them. Right. And it's, it's obviously it's not going to be good. If, if you're a minor league player, you get promoted and you play, you know, three weeks in major league baseball and then you're back to the minors, but at least you got that experience and you got to prove yourself against major league pitching and hitting. Um, so it, that's, it's, it's an interesting time of the season because you start to see these names you never heard of. Um, and like I said before, we mentioned four or five guys here. Sure. But there's, Every team yeah. has players coming up out of the woodwork that you've never heard of. Um, so it's it's kind of it's fun to watch. And, you know, the, the guys I mentioned are sort of like these top 10, top 100 prospect types. Um, right. And these are potentially the, uh, the future of baseball. Um, we've seen a huge impact on many different teams of – really young guys that have just sort of come up and instantly dominated. And I think the, the focus, at least in, in baseball these days is on the younger talent. And it's, it's fun to see these guys come up and just immediately, um, become like professional baseball players. 
And yeah, you know, we talked about this concept before in another podcast that uh, when a player reaches its prime and starts to like fade out a little bit of its prime and they're up for negotiation, it might not make a whole lot of sense to buy them after you've already gotten the best years of them. You might take that money and put it towards somebody's whose prime is yet to be seen and they're cheaper. And so you can make mm -hmm. the most of that. So you, you pay for talent before talent can give you the value. You don't pay for talent that you've already gotten. You know, that's, it's kind of like a, like one of those things, like a lot of guys at the end of their careers, they get traded to different teams because the they're expensive and they can use that money for younger talent. And then these other guys can pick them up for, you know, much cheaper than they would have if they were being re-signed with the same team again, you know? So, um, it, now I think about it like Josh Donaldson being traded for, say, Vlad Guerrero Jr. makes more sense to me because uh, Vlad is quite a bit younger, still, you know, developing, whereas Josh Donaldson's, you know, he's, he's you know, he's ripe and, you know, he's, he's, had a, he's had a pretty solid career so far. So it makes, makes sense that you can reinvest um, and it, trying to get the best years out of, out of, the, out of, out of athletes that you can uh, for mm -hmm. the best price. It just comes down to economics in that way. So I totally understand that from a business move. And um, these other guys, I've heard of some of these other guys. Um, it's going to be interesting to see kind of where they sort of fall and fit into their roles throughout the year and maybe next year too and kind of see them come up. So glad we got to touch on some of the call-ups. Do you want to talk about the Ryan Howard uh, retirement? Sure, I can just briefly mention it. I don't really sure. have a whole lot to say about right. it. Do you have a lot to say about it? Well, I mean, Ryan Howard is one of those guys that I knew was popular when I got back to the hobby in 2003. And so mm -hmm. I found I was like, oh, man, he was like, you know, a big super hot shot. And he's had a pretty productive career. But then he was shuffled around the minors, minors a little bit. He actually played for the Albuquerque Isotopes um, this year. And so I was er, last year, rather, in 2017. And so I saw him um, on the field. And I was like, oh, it's, it's you know, it's Ryan Howard. And it's kind of cool. Uh, but now, you know, a year later, he's announcing retirement. And he always had a pretty pretty good career. And he's he was certainly uh, valuable in the hobby for a time. Um, his 2003 Bowman's Best uh, card is certainly a, a one to have. And there are several others that are certainly good, good solid pieces to own. So I never collected Ryan Howard. Um, I don't even really, I don't even think I have anything from him, but I know that he had a very productive career. Now, I don't know if there's Hall of Fame numbers there, but um, certainly one of those guys that had a lot of fun playing uh, baseball for a long time. Yeah, uh, I don't think Hall of Fame is really in the question. I do remember two things from Ryan Howard. First of all, he was part of the uh, the Phillies championship team mm. in uh, 2009, I want to say, 2008 somewhere in that era, which was huge. Uh, you know, I don't think Philadelphia had had a championship in a long time, and that was a really fun team to watch in a really awesome World Series. Mm -hmm. um, and then another thing, like after the whole steroid era sort of blew over, we never really saw anybody have monster home run seasons. You know, like yeah. and when he I say big monster ones. home runs, I want to say like over 40. Well, he had 58 in 2006. Yeah, that's what 58. I was 58. It's crazy. It's an then, insane number. In 2007, he had 47. 2008, he had 48. In 2009, he had 45. Yeah. And then after that, it kind of fizzled down a bit. But solid, solid years. Yeah, for so hitting. those years, he was <laughs> just the most dominant power hitter right. 
Um, really fun to watch. Hit a super smooth, almost like Ken Griffey-esque swing. He was a lot bulkier and a different body than, than Griffey, but um, they're both lefties. They both had these really nice, smooth swings, yeah. and they were both power hitters. So that's like the immediate comparison I think of when I think of Ryan Howard. And he's um, one of the rare athletes that stays with the same team throughout his whole career. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 13 yeah, years with the Phillies. Really, really Philly cool through stuff. and through. I'm sure Hall of Fame is probably not in the question, but I'm sure like the, the Philadelphia Phillies Hall of Fame, he'll he'll get some recognition there. Sure. Um, because the World Series thing and the, just those dominant years, I mean, they, they might retire his number. He probably deserves that at, at the very least. Well, he had and, two uh, numbers with the Phillies. He had 12 and 6, so maybe they'll retire both numbers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they'll add up both of them and divide by two, and they'll get nine, and they'll retire nine, so they can just retire one number instead of two. <laughs> okay, I digress. I digress. Uh, moving on to the card world here. Um, cool stuff happening in the auction block. Uh, Mark Trumbo, 2006 Bowman Chrome Red Refractor to five has surfaced with a $400 asking price. That's after shipping. Um, great card to have. I think at one point it would have been an even better card to have. I personally don't think it's worth $400, but um, somebody does. Nope. Too expensive. It's way too expensive. And interestingly enough, his 2006 card isn't really technically his rookie card. His 2004 stuff qualifies as his rookie card, not rookie year card. That stuff took place in 2011. So this like mid-frame stuff from 2006, very cool. Uh, definitely minor league stuff still. Um, but and I'd love to have the red, but I'm, there's no possible way I'll, I'll 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 take you know I'll pull the trigger on $400. But I appreciate seeing it. I think it's cool. Um, pretty high asking prices for that card, even in like a gold refractor. I mean, I've seen upwards of like $200 for a gold refractor. I just, I guess people can ask anything they want for anything they have, but <laughs> the market just won't bear until the market is willing to find a price that they're actually willing to pay. So kind of cool though, yeah. regardless of price and perceived value, this is a very nice, you know, at least to see it. It's kind of cool. I like that. Definitely. I mean, red refractors, I think we both sort of have a um, a bias towards red refractors, and they're really them. awesome cards. Yeah. Um, they're great. And we've also talked a lot about on this podcast about perceived value, and yeah. just just because someone's asking for four hundred bucks doesn't mean it's worth four hundred bucks. If you're a collector that wants a Mark Trumbo card of this caliber, um, you know, just be careful, do your research, and if there's not a make an offer option on eBay. Uh, think about emailing the seller and just give them some facts. Would you say, take fifty? You know. Yeah. <laughs> would you take nineteen ninety nine? Right. I mean, you know your shipping cost. Can would you take that as the asking price? So in this capacity, if it's something I really am interested in, and the price is just like in in some sort of like enchanted forest land, you know, I'll, I'll email the, the, the seller and be like, Hey, you know, are you pretty firm on the price? Uh, or would you entertain something, you know, a little bit closer to earth? Like, you know, not, not, not to be offensive in any way. I try to respect the seller as much as I can, but, um, you know, I might give references, Hey, you know, this uh, versions of this card sold the last year for this price and this price. I'd like to match that. I know you got to make a, like, I sometimes will ask, what are you into it for? And I'm like, well, let's see if we can get you a profit out of that. 
you know, like I want to make sure I covered that cost and then give you a little bit extra. So you're, you're you know, it's good business. You make a little much, you buy it for 20, I give you 30, you make 10 bucks. Like that's fair. And so, um, in this capacity, you know, I don't know if this guy bought this card for $400. If he bought it in the peak of Trumbo era, which is 2011, um, it might've sold for that much at one point. Now, this, these records are are available for a fee on for certain services online. I'm not willing to pay those fees because I don't care enough about that. But if I did, you know, I I wanted to actually have a, a solid argument, a solid foundation for a conversation, I would go and um, retrieve some of those old sale listings. But here's the thing. Here's here's the caveat with that. I can't benchmark a sale listing that happened in 2011 in the current market because a car that sold for that price in 2011 won't sell for that price in the current market because of player performance. It's like stock value. So it, these old sale listings don't really matter at this point. They're kind of just like talking points. They're not for negotiation. They're like, oh, sold for $530 in 2011, so I'll give you 560 today. That's just unfortunately not how it works. Uh, the current market for this card, you know, 50 to 80 would probably be on a very high, like hopeful expectation. I think 80 is probably not going to happen. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that it's no matter the case, it's fun to see stuff, even if it's way pr priced too high. It's fun to see stuff. It's cool to see things. And um, I, I try not to, like, give sellers too much of a hard time with asking prices because some people, not, they, they might not know any better. And who am I to say, like, hey, who is this guy think he is for charging this much for this card? Like, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he does know, and he just likes the card. Like, you and I, like, we buy stuff from a personal standpoint, you know, I'm willing to pay probably more than somebody else for a lot of things. And because people, nobody collects the stuff that I end up buying, like just nobody collects it. Like who's going to buy a Fernando Martinez rookie card in the current market? Probably I'm the only one, you know? And so it's like knowing that, um, maybe there are certain sellers that just don't really want to sell their stuff. They just want to like kind of see how the market's going to respond. And I totally respect that. I, I get it. I think it's cool. Um, but with genuine interest from coming from guys like you and I, it would, you know, it's a nice idea to kind of entertain a conversation like, well, you know, yeah, I'll entertain a, you know, an offer. What would you have in mind? And then we can talk about it and sort of like open up a dialogue. And so, uh, that aside, it's really cool to finally see the red version of this. I've kind of tracked this card for the last couple of years and I've haven't bought a version of it because I, I am very picky. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and the gold asking price when I saw it a couple of years ago was just way, way, way too high. So when I saw this red, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, you know, I've never seen a red version of this card. There are a couple of cards I'm still looking for just to see a red version of them. You know, one of them is a Hank Conger. I'm still waiting to see a red version of that card. Uh, I knew it sold in 2011, but it probably sold at the peak of its market value. Now it'd be probably very difficult to uh, um, uh, replicate that sale value, but... Anyway, just want to talk about that. It's cool. Mark Trumbo, 2006 Bowman Chrome Red Refractor is uh, currently online now for $400. All right, moving on. Uh, Babe Ruth, 1921 E121 American Caramel PSA 7, which is a pop one of that version of the card. When I say that, the Babe in the, the phrase Babe Ruth uh, is in quotation marks. There's a version of it that doesn't have the quotation marks. Uh, auction house by the name of small traditions recently sold this and it closed at $89,175, which was a shocker because 
a uh, PSA 6 example of the same version of the card fetched $115,626 in a 20, 2017 memory lane auction. So I was actually surprised to see it fetch for less than six figures for a, such a such a huge card. Very significant card. Still features him as a pitcher, and he's on the New York Yankees. Uh, just, just an awesome, awesome card. It has that same kind of appearance as the 1916 Sporting News card that we've all come to know as Babe Ruth's rookie card. Uh, really, really cool stuff. And um, on that card as well, the similarity is he's also in a pitching outfit for the Boston Red Sox. So um, I thought that was a really cool sale. A huge, you know, I watched it till the end. It's just a really big, just awesome, awesome mm-hmm. um, uh, card. I, I, I would someday love to own uh, a Babe Ruth from the 19-teens um, just because it's they're so significant. But got to get one. Had got, it's got to be graded because I want to make sure it's authentic. There are a lot of <laughs> fake ones out there that look yes. real, and so um, it would be great for me to someday be able to finance a, an authentic example. Just a really, Definitely. really awesome, awesome auction. I just thought that was so cool. I think um, when I was like a younger collector, I sort of shied away from a lot of this very high-end vintage stuff. Oh, we all did. Um, <laughs> just because it's like, well, I'm never going to be able to afford, you know, 90 grand on a card, right? which I'm sure is a reality for most collectors. And that's still a reality for, for me. And like, I get that. But um, like I get the PSA um, newsletter in my inbox every week. Sure. And they, they cover this stuff. I, I have other newsletters that I get sent and they talk about these high-end vintage sales and I'm never really going to be involved, but I think it's still interesting to follow just so you know what's going on in the market. And who knows, maybe you might stumble upon a a copy of one of these kind of ultra vintage um, cards. And if it's in your wheelhouse, like you got to know what the market is demanding for these kind of cards regardless of whether or not you have any plans to, to purchase one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's, it's fun to follow. And I always like, like when, when friends, colleagues, family, they, they bring up sports cards as sort of like a trivial matter. I'll say, well, you know, somebody just spent 90 grand on this card on one card. Yeah, and ninety I mean, grand could get you a down payment on a very nice house anywhere in America. Right, <laughs> so huge it's equity. Like, right, it's it's a huge investment, and regardless of whether or not you actually want to buy something like this, I think it's important if you're a collector just to sort of be well rounded um, in the economics of of what's going on in this particular part of the sports collecting world. So I really like this stuff a lot, but like you, I shied away from it when I was a youngster because I get, I was like, dude, this is just like this it's is insane. like museum quality <laughs> stuff. Like I'm never gonna be able to even touch. It's so far out of the reach. It's like skyscraper. But right. you know, as I've gotten older, I've also acquired some Frank Thomas cards I never thought I'd ever own because they were too exactly. far to reach. And so yep. I've gotten closer to accepting the possibility that you know there might be a chance at some point in my life where I'll be able to finance something like this. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of casually keep tabs on some of this high-end stuff kind of floating through the market uh, with the various different auction houses and 
um, you know, just kind of fun for, to do research, you know, just to keep learning about cards that, that are so old, you know, 1921, it's nearly a hundred year old card. And so it's, um, there's a lot of Ruth stuff I still haven't seen yet, you know? And so, um, I, I don't know. I, I just really like this stuff a lot. It's old. It's very Americana, you know, baseball has that like yes. very romantic attachment to Americana. And I love, I love that about baseball. I always have. Um, I always thought that like old jazz goes really well with vintage baseball. Just for some reason, they like mesh really well together. And, you know, I'm not even really that into jazz. So it's like kind of just like it just kind of works. I can't explain it. It's just a. And when I see these old cards, I'm reminded of that time, that old, even though I wasn't around, I'm just reminded of that like kind of romantic time in American history. And so um, these are huge pieces. But like I said, if I'm going to buy one, it's got to be authenticated, which means it's got to be graded, which means it's going to, you know, have a lot of attention around it. Um, But guys like me, guys like me don't need the highest grade versions. I don't need a pop one, a PSA seven. I'd be happy with a pop like three or four and a PSA one with like pretty good eye appeal. That's got hammered corners and maybe some creasing. I don't, I really, you know, I'm pretty lenient with this stuff. Even though I had enough money to finance the PSA seven, I'd probably be completely happy with a PSA one for a fraction of the cost. When I say a fraction, it's like $25,000 instead of $90,000, you know, still a big number. Uh, but, um, I just want to mention that with this particular lot, I thought it was a really cool listing. I was just surprised it didn't cl- close for more than a hundred grand, knowing that a PSA six sold for well over a hundred grand at a different auction house relatively recently. So I wanted to touch on that. Moving on, uh, speaking of guys that are kind of like, you know, in the same, uh, uh, no pun intended ballpark as Babe Ruth is uh, Shohei Otani. And his 2018 Bowman Chrome Super Fractor Auto, which I actually held in person at the 2018 National, amazing card, by the way, graded a BGS 9.5 and is now on an, an auction with Goodwin & Co., a Beckett company, uh, had a starting bid of 6000 and it is currently up to over $20,000. And uh, huge. really huge. Horrible timing with this like Tommy John stuff because, like we said earlier in the podcast, that um, he was diagnosed with um, elbow sprain on like the same day that the superfractor was pulled. Just bad timing. Now the superfractor is listed on like the same time that he's now diagnosed to like potentially have need to have Tommy John surgery officially. So kind of just coincidentally poor timing, I think for everything, but really cool stuff. And the card itself is incredible and I hope it performs really, really well. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this, uh, go to radicards.com and, and type in Shoei Otani in the search bar and in the blogging in the blog area. And um, I've written extensive coverage on various cards that have come and surfaced and sold throughout the um, the last couple of months. And I kind of slowed down on that because there's so many brands producing autographs and super fractures. It's kind of like everything kind of gets gets lost in the shuffle after a while. You 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 know you write about the first four or five of them, but then there's like quite a few of them out in the market now. So um, I uh, just wanted to kind of share that with you in case you want to learn more about some of the significant sales that have taken place between May and now. Uh, cool stuff. So Shoya Tani 2018 Bowman Chrome Superfractor Auto is now at auction with Goodwin & Co. And uh, it's already surpassed the $20,000 mark. Really cool stuff. I don't know, Ryan, did you, uh, have you had, a, had, a, had a look at that auction yet? Yeah, I took a look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a huge card. I know that it's it is bad timing, like you said. Totally. Um, but it seems like, regardless of the Otani injury news that we've 
been dealing with over the past couple months that the market has sustained its sort of hysteria over Otani. Um, so I know this auction is going to end very strongly. I expect lower level things that are going on in eBay. They're still going to be strong sales. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like you said about the Babe Ruth card earlier, almost a hundred years um, ago, that card was printed. And I'm curious, a hundred years from now, <laughs> what are we going to think about Shohei Otani and his rookie cards? And it's it's sort of like a interesting experiment you can think about. Um, like what in a hundred years, what are they going to be the most coveted cards that people are going to be shelling out? You know hundreds of thousands of dollars for well this is an interesting tony might be one of those guys this is an interesting conversation because uh um just recently i was thinking about you know stuff that was rare in 2001 that's like they're just rare like you just never see these cards now and that was only like what 17 years ago so fast forward 17 years from now you know Mm -hmm. it's 2035 or 36 or whatever right yeah and what, so, what are the 2001 cards going to look like then? What are the 2018 cards going to look like then? That's the question, okay. right? It's like, okay, there you go. Like, okay. but but I think about like, the conversation is, if in a hundred years the stuff being released now is going to have the same monetary significance that the stuff that was produced a hundred years ago has today, it's difficult. This complex, right? Because the current market is so much different than it was a hundred years ago. You know, we've got like all right. these protection methods and we've got multiple brands competing with one another and we've got like tons and tons of parallels and these inserts and there's like, you know, there's like prospectors and set collectors and there's, you know, um, there's just large print runs, you know, stuff's being cared for much more now than ever uh, with magnets and lucite cases and top loaders and um, semi-rigids and um, penny sleeves and pages and binders and, you know, the list goes on. So um, all good things, stuff's being graded, all good stuff. So I, I don't know if in 100 years the stuff that's being released now is going to have the same significance that the stuff 100, that was produced 100 years ago today has because back then all the stuff that was produced 100 years ago was up against so many risky situations. Like people didn't care for their cards as, like they do today, so they were just kind of trashed, you know, and so... Um, stuff was lost and thrown out and you know the old like my right. mom threw out my collection that's the, a lot of reasons why a lot of that stuff is rare and expensive is because of all the situations they were put through in today's mm-hmm. market it's not like that you know, it's a rare occurrence where you hear like kids our age saying my my mom just threw away my whole card collection like it just doesn't happen in the current market you know right and so i don't there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why that you know kids aren't really in the market and their parents are trying to get them into something and so they encourage the collecting of something like a hobby and so these kinds of things are exceedingly rare situations in the current market like parents throwing out their stuff their kids stuff first of all you could go to like court for that because it's not your stuff so <laughs> but the second piece of that is that because there's so much being produced now in a hundred years, yeah, there's going to be stuff that's very rare and you'll never see again, or that's just going to be continue to be rare um, as as time progresses. But I don't think it's going to have the same monetary significance that stuff produced a hundred years ago has now. Now, in a hundred years, the stuff produced a hundred years ago today is going to have like 
way more value even then, like way, 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 way more value because it's 200 years old now instead of a hundred years old. So, right. um, you know, the Ruth card will probably be well into the six figures at that point, maybe more. I mean, who knows, right. but. And like the, the Ruth and the Otani cards are sort of cool thought pieces to, to think about. And, uh, I, I agree with you that there's, there's been a shift in how we think about sports cars these days, as opposed to back in the early 20th century. Um, I think back then sports cards were, they weren't really even like quote unquote sports cards. They were like toys or they were like just these things that you would get. Well, they're novelty items, right? It's like, just like, they're like, just like a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. It's like a bookmark, you you know, it's, yeah, they're throwaway things. And I know that the, the typical, rule of thumb is like anything after 19, like the mid seventies is, is sort of considered not as uh, vintage in a way, just because that's, that was sort of the time when people started to look at sports cars as sports cards as like these collectible um, coveted items. Um, you know, like the fifties and sixties kids were growing up with these things and their bike spokes, they were growing up, they would put these cards, whatever, you know, they would, they wouldn't treat them well. Mm-hmm. And to your point, you know, it's, it, that's why it's hard to find these things in good condition. Whereas in the late seventies, eighties, nineties, people started to actually collect and treat their cards with respect. Um, and that just makes like the PSA seven from 1921 is just an insane idea because if you consider the history of that card and what it went through, to get greater to seven, I mean, the odds are just really insane for that kind of thing to happen. Truly. I mean, it's so old. I mean, I, I personally think anything above a three is impressive. Really, I think threes are impressive. But honestly, anything that's survived all this time is mm-hmm. is kind of a jaw dropper, you know, in any condition. I mean, I'm, I, I like seeing stuff that's got their back ripped off because it was adhered to some kind of a, an album. You know, it's still like, man, it still survives. Usually someone would see this after it's been pulled in the album and just throw it in the garbage, you know, and, but it's still around and then here it is right in front of me. So anyway, kind of interesting to see where the super fractor is going to end up and kind of a cool kind of lead into my next thing, which is who do you think is going to make the AL and NL rookie of the years, right? Like who's going to get those awards. And honestly, I can't think of anybody else besides Otani for the AL award because mm-hmm. how insignificant this kid is and how much coverage and everything else. I honestly think I couldn't pick, I can't pick anybody else besides Otani personally. Um, and I, I honestly think it would be an insult to pick anybody else knowing how rare of a, uh, it is to find somebody with a dual talent like that. Like I, 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 it's almost like a, like a, when you think of somebody who needs to get something, you immediately think of something else, like the ideal type rookie of the year award winner for 2018 is Otani to me. Right. Um, yeah. And moving on though, with the national league, I know that this, I don't, I don't know what you think. You're probably, you and I are probably going to disagree, but I, I think that Ronald Acuna jr. Should, should win the, the rookie of the year award for the national league, just because he's, well, a couple of things. He's a great hitter. He's a great performer. And he's brought fun back to baseball, much like, you know, the campaign that Bryce Harper sort of has, has you know, built on himself is like bring fun back into baseball. Um, and so um, his his slogan at Bryce Harper's was make baseball fun again. So uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. kind of does that 
you know, I think in a way he's still very young. So he has that kind of like charisma that I think all of us should have at that age. But he's a, he really like um, expresses it. And I really appreciate about that about him. And, you know, his hobby interest is very strong. It's very robust. Um, and he had that, she had that brief knee injury and he's come back and he's still you know, a great performer. So I, I like, those are my two picks. Uh, Otani for the AL and Okuna for the NL. What about you, Ryan? So I, with my picks, I tried to be a little bit contrarian and I tried to go against what you had picked. Okay. And in the AL, there are a lot of people that are saying the Yankees rookies deserve um, the rookie of the year. So that would be Glaber Torres, Miguel Andujar. Um, but as much as I looked at everyone's stats, I could not make a case against Shohei. So we're in agreement with the AL. Shohei Otani, definitely. <laughs> Just considering his talent on the mound, talent at the plate. And there's going to be a knock against him because he lost some time due to injury, um, which I totally get. But when he was healthy and on the field, he was incredible to watch. Um and, and I know we've said this several times before, but there's never been someone like this since Babe Ruth. And mm-hmm. it's like this really incredible thing, not just for the Angels, but just for baseball in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really fun. So we're, we're in agreement on that. NL, I'm going to go with Juan Soto. Um, and going back to me trying to be a little contrarian, I just um, it's, it's really difficult to sort of parse out the differences between Juan Soto and Acuna. And it's kind of interesting, actually, if you if you pull up both their stats, they have like eerily similar statistics. <laughs> it's like they've both played roughly the same amount of games. Um, if you look at the big stats like home runs, batting average, um, on base percentage, slugging percentage, all that stuff, they're very similar. So I'm going to say Juan Soto because he is so young. And um, he's got a little more power than Acuna does. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's hard to make an argument for or against either of these guys. And I, I don't really know how they're going to figure out <laughs> who deserves the award. Obviously, the season isn't over yet. So they can be, you know, one guy could fall off and another guy could s- sort of push through. But... You know, you and I both know that the, these awards are granted based on the flip of a coin. Yes, it's it's all it's, it's like <laughs> the writers committee, and it's it's kind of it's pulling names out of a hat, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I think Acuna is, is probably a little bit in the lead because he plays for a winning team, like the Braves are doing very well this year, and the yeah. the Nationals are um, not not really at this point. So, but there's still you know a little less than a month less of baseball to play so anything can happen between then and now or now and then and um but as it stands right now these these players have sort of put up like very similar numbers um very impressive at at a young age especially Juan Soto I think he's like 19 which is just insane um so Soto is my pick um I think your pick is also very valid and like I said I don't know how the committee for these awards is going to sort of separate these two players. Um, I guess it's going to come down to like defense and uh, what team you're playing for in the end. 
Well, I, I don't. Does it? It's got to have like there's a voters committee, just like the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, isn't that like, isn't that how that sort of works? I mean, is it? Is a group of guys that get together and they sort of like, kind of, they vote on it. I don't know it's, though, because I. Under, it's that's, my that's, understanding. It's it's the BBWA, the Baseball Writers Association right. of America. Yeah. Who they they vote on MVP, uh, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, and all those major awards. Um, but we all know that the writers have particular biases towards teams they cover, their history in in the league. You know, it's it's so it's sort of arbitrary at some point. And there have been several upsets for Cy Young and MVP and Rookie of the Year over the years. Um, so when you have two players like Soto and Acuna that are just very similar in their production it's it's going to be like you said it's like a flip of a coin i mean it it really could be any of these two guys yeah their their numbers are very very similar you know the, i think they're both very good solid candidates for the uh nl roi um yeah so there you have it so uh looks like we disagree <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's it's not that much big of a disagreement though i mean it's, it's no it's, it's not, not. You know, and, and we still have also like the Cy Young Award winners to discuss down the line. So uh, there's still some coverage on this. It'll be fun to see uh, who does get selected. And I certainly, I'd be shocked if they picked anybody besides Otani for the AL ROI. I honestly would almost be like, kind of like put off by it. Like this, yes. it'd be distasteful if yes, they picked absolutely. anybody else besides Otani. Honestly, I'd be like, you guys aren't even paying attention to your jobs. <laughs> you know how how often do you get a Babe Ruth style player that comes to Kate player that comes through and performs at this level at this young age? It's just just that alone, right there. That fact alone should stimulate people's interest in giving this guy the ROI award. Just like bam, qualified, get him in there. That, mm -hmm. that, that's an eight hundred on the GMAT. You know what I'm saying? You can have your take a pick, whatever graduate business schools you want to go to. So I just think that like he's gotten this this far. You know he should get that award, but uh, that concludes this podcast. Ryan, do you have any final thoughts? Mm, looking forward to the rest of September baseball, and I know that we talked earlier about the late season call-ups. Um, that's something I particularly enjoy mm -hmm. about this time of year in baseball. So, um, if you're a fan of a team that's not really in contention, I would just try and don't be upset that you're not going to make the playoffs. Um, just look at who's going to be added to your roster because um, that's the future of your team, really. Um, so September can be a very exciting time, whether or not your team is going to be in the playoffs in October. Yes, the end of the season is certainly an interesting time for all kinds of things to happen. Lots of possibilities can happen between now and the end of September and then leading into October. Mm -hmm. Um for those of you listening, if you were, uh, if you got this far, thank you. Post your takes on who you think's gonna should win the Rookie of the Year awards for the AL and NL. Maybe you disagree with us. Maybe you don't think that Otani should win it. Maybe you have somebody else in mind. Maybe you think somebody else besides Okuna and Soto should win it. You know, besides those two guys. So post your notes below in a comments area if you're listening to this on YouTube or in uh, on the on, on the blog. Um, if you're on iTunes, well then you know head over to those channels and. Um, share your thoughts if you'd like to i thank you for listening to the uh, radicards podcast and radicards.com i'm your host patrick greeno thank you ryan for joining us and until next time enjoy collecting if you like this content please subscribe thank you enjoy collecting <laughs>